You know, in the book of Psalms, David says, praise the Lord on the stringed instrument. That was biblical. So I, th I think that was, that was huge. It is great to be with you in the house today. For those of you that I had, haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Mac Richard, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're excited and honored by the fact that you are here with us today to worship. I know a lot of people are beginning summer or are, are about to begin summer next weekend, so we're thrilled to have you with us, especially as we got to celebrate baptism today. Was that a cool moment or what? That never gets old, I hope. I hope that never gets old. For those of you who don't know, we're also one church in two locations. Right now at Brazos Hall, Lake Hills Church downtown is gathering. And so we're excited about what God is doing down there. I want to begin my time with you this morning by asking you a question. And we're going to take kind of a, a poll to determine spiritual maturity. So it's imperative that you answer honestly and forthrightly. Your answers will remain anonymous and in this room. Nobody will ever mention this again or use it against you, but to determine the spiritual welfare and temperature of Lake Hills Church, how many of you have ever been to the State Fair of Texas? Let me just see a show of hands. Yes, yes, hands are going up all over the room. The buses will wait. Thank you so much. Now, it's important that you answer that question properly for you to understand where we're going with this. The State Fair of Texas is really and truly a phenomenal event, and for those who were blessed enough to get to be a part of the 40 acres in the University of Texas, you know that State Fair of Texas time is also Texas OU time. When we travel to Dallas on the second Saturday of every October to beat the heck out of OU. And because my wife, Julie, is from Mississippi, I felt it was my obligation, my duty as a husband and a native Texan to introduce her to the joys and the celebration that is the State Fair of Texas, like fried Twinkies and Fletcher's corn dogs and all those kind of things. Because Julie is a phenomenal woman who comes from a phenomenal family. But I mean, let's be honest, the Mississippi State Fair, the Texas State Fair, it's really not even fair. <laughs> did you see what I did there? And so early in our marriage, we really didn't have two nickels to rub together, but we would save our entertainment dollars for months in order to go to the State Fair of Texas and ride the rides, buy a corn dog, and just have a big blowout of a time. And at the time, we were living in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and some friends of mine who still lived here in Austin called us one year and said, hey, we're coming up for Texas OU. Would you and Julie like to go to the game with us, and then we'll do the fair afterwards? And I said, you know what? Y'all go to the game, but we'll meet you after the game, and then we'll go do the fair. And they're like, hey, that's cool. And, I, and so I had this brilliant idea. This, and I have to tell you this as, as a little aside. This was such a rookie mistake that I made. I'm about to share it with you. This was huge, huge state fair breach of etiquette. It was really just dumb. I said the following. I tell you what. After the game, Julie and I will meet you at Big Tex. Now, if you've ever seen the Texas OU game, you know the Big Tex is, howdy, partners. He's like, you know, 35 feet tall, big Wrangler jeans, huge Justin boots, big text you can't miss. But after the game, at the foot of big Texas boots, it's like an anthill with squillions of people running around looking for other people and gathering up, and you can't find anybody. And so Julie and I 
tried to meet them. We were keeping track of the game on our AM transistor radios. For those of you who are young, we'll explain that later. But we were keeping track of the game and knew that it was ending. We saw people pouring out of the Cotton Bowl there on the Texas State Fairgrounds. And we went to the foot of Big Tex, and there we were surrounded by thousands upon thousands of people at this intersection of two huge avenues coming from the fairgrounds and the cotton bolts dumping into the fairgrounds. And finally, after about 30 or 45 minutes of hunting and pecking and looking around, going, do you see him? I don't know. Do you see him? Do you see him looking really intelligent? We finally connected with this other couple. We're, Stay there. Don't move. Don't move. I'll come to you. And I thought back on that moment a lot because I think the chaos of that moment, the, the frustration of that moment there at the foot of Big Tex describes our faith journey a lot. I think there are a lot of times when we say, you know what, I'm going to try to, I'm going to meet with God and I'm going to, I'm going to really try to connect with him like Julie and I wanted to connect with that other couple and we think, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to connect with God. And for whatever reason, the connection misses. For whatever reason, our prayers maybe don't feel like they're clearing the ceiling and we feel like there's just a, a lot of chaos and movement, but there's no real connection. Today, as we continue this series, Carry On, we're going to dive into a critical moment in the life of Joshua, our main subject matter throughout this series, and talk about and discover how we get through those moments in order to really and truly meet with God, in order to really and truly dispel all of the chaos, all of the frenzy, all of the running around, all of the frustration, and really and truly meet with God. Now, let me just kind of bring you up to speed if you've been out of town or haven't been here for a couple of weeks, or maybe this is your first time. The story of Joshua is told in the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. It's the sixth book of the Old Testament. Joshua has taken the reins of leadership over the nation of Israel from our man Moses. He is now leading Israel as they begin to occupy the promised land, the, the promised blessing from God given to Abraham centuries earlier, now finally becoming a reality for Joshua and the nation of Israel as a whole. And in Joshua chapter 10, I just need to tell you something. Matter of fact, I want you to tell your neighbor something with passion and enthusiasm. Tell them, buckle up. Here's why. I'm just telling you right up front, today's fixing to get freaky. Today is fixing to get a little bit freaky. You're, you're gonna, some of you are going to be like, oh, I don't know about that. Because in Joshua chapter 10, Israel has begun this military campaign, this conquest that God has called them to, to occupy the promised land. And as such, as you would imagine, certain alliances are being formed. There was one village, one country known as the Gibeonites. They, they lived in an area known as Gibeon. And they got wind of what was happening everywhere Israel went. They, they saw that wherever Israel went, Israel won. I mean, it was, they were... They were 4-0 so far in the promised land. And Gibeon decided they wanted to be on Israel's side. They go, they win everything, let's partner with them. And so they allied themselves with Israel. But there was another group of nations 
who aligned themselves with the Amorites. Now, the Amorites saw Israel coming down the road, and they're like, uh-uh, we ain't bound to nobody. No, no. Because this was, after all, a military campaign. Israel did not just show up on the doorstep of the Amorites. Um, excuse me, God promised us your country. If you could clear out, we'll take it over now. That is not the way it happened. It was a war. It was a battle zone. And so the Amorites assembled their own alliance of five nations that would then resist the onslaught of Israel. But the Amorites were smart. They heard of Israel's favor from God and how they were winning battle after battle after battle. And instead of attacking Israel, they decided to go after Israel's ally, Gibeon. Well, when the Amorites attacked the Gibeonites, the Gibeonites called up Joshua on the hot phone. And they said, get your hide down here to Gibeon. There's bad things happen. The Amorites, five nations are coming against us. Let's go. And so Joshua loaded up the tanks and the Chinook helicopters and everything else and began to descend upon Gibeon. Check this out in Joshua chapter 10, verse 7. So Joshua and his entire army, including his best warriors, left Gilgal and set out for Gibeon. Now, that just kind of sounds like, you know, today's Sunday, we're in church. But that is a critical moment. And here's what I want to set up because this is really the essence of everything that we're about today. When you feel like you're in a chaotic, disconnected state with God, Never forget the fact that God meets us at the intersection of super and natural. God meets us at the intersection of super and natural. He brings his supernatural power, his perfection, his infinitude, and invites our natural selves into relationship with him. That's where we meet God is at the intersection of super and natural. Now, Joshua has assembled his greatest warriors. They've got a battle coming up, and then he moves on in verse 8. As they are making their way toward Gibeon, God guarantees a win to Joshua. How cool is that? Look at this. Do not be afraid of them, the Lord said to Joshua, for I have given you victory over them. Not a single one of them will be able to stand up to you. Man, if I'm Joshua, you know what I do at this point? Sweet. We're going home, boys. Come on. Victory dances on me. God promised we're going to win this war. Now, I don't know where you are today. I don't know your perspective on God. But this is a powerful moment. Think about if God guaranteed you a win. How many of you are married? Let me see a show of hands. If God, if God guaranteed you a winning marriage, I don't mean a marriage that just kind of makes it or stays together for the kids, but I mean a marriage that thrives and flourishes. Dude, I'd be like, sign me up. I'm all over that. Joshua, though, took the promise of God, and look at what he did with this. This is fascinating. Right after God made this promise, in verse 9, Joshua traveled all night from Gilgal and took the Amorite armies 
by surprise. That's kind of weird to me. That, That if God guarantees you the win, can't you rest for the evening? I mean, they're, they're marching towards Gibeon. The, the battle's about to be joined. Can't you just, God guaranteed the win. Can't we just kind of, you know, maybe we should rest right here because there's a battle coming. But Joshua gives us an amazing example because it's at the intersection of super and natural that faith meets hard work. It's at the intersection of super and natural that faith meets hard work work. Joshua did not just kind of chill out because God had given them the guarantee of the win. Joshua pressed that much harder. He kept going. And it's so critical for you and for me when we feel like we're not really connecting with God or maybe things are not going the way that we want them to, that we press in And do what God has called us to do. See, there's a critical principle at play here. Whenever faith meets hard work, it begins by us using what's in our hands. Using what you have right here, right now, just to take the next step. God did not say, Joshua, I will give you the victory by you going down and surprising them at sunrise and taking this win. Or, Joshua, I will give you the victory by raining hailstones down upon them and it will kill only them but not Israel. God just said, I promise you, you will win. But he expected Joshua to go to work. I want you right now with passion and enthusiasm, tell your neighbor, go to work. We, we can work on that passion and enthusiasm. But that was, that's what God's saying. Go to work. To use what's in your hand is how God has always operated. Think back to when God called Moses to lead Israel out of Egyptian slavery. Remember, Moses, at the time, the only job Moses could get, the only job he could get was as a shepherd and a goat herd for his father-in-law, whose name was Jethro. That's not a big resume builder. Well, Jethro hired me. Jethro, God, I mean, just what... He's working for his father-in-law. And you got to figure his father-in-law would only hire him so that the father-in-law's daughter, Moses' wife, wouldn't starve. It's like, fine, you need a job. You killed a guy. You're on the run from the law. Take care of my goats and just don't bother me. Just, just go take care of the goats. But it was taking care of the goats where God called Moses from the burning bush. And God called Moses and said, you will lead my people out of Egypt. And he said, Moses, what's that in your hand? And Moses goes, it's my shepherd's staff. It's the thing that I use to guide the sheep and the goats. And it's the thing I use to fend off attacking animals. It's my shepherd's staff. And God said, throw it down. Throw it down. Now, the shepherd's staff is critical to a shepherd. You and I don't really connect with that. We're like, that's a big stick with a crook in it. I've seen it in pictures. Vacation Bible school. But for a shepherd, that staff represented his security that staff to a lot of them represented their identity because it was with the staff that they directed and guided the sheep it was with the staff that they fended off attacking animals and when God said throw it down Moses was throwing down the only line of defense that he had he did not have a 30-06 
with a Bushnell scope on it. That staff was it. And God said, throw it down. And as soon as Moses threw it down, the staff became a snake. Became a snake. And then God said, Moses, pick it up. But not only Moses, pick it up, pick it up by the tail. Now, you don't have to watch a lot of Discovery Channel to know that picking up a snake by the tail is the wrong end. But when Moses picked up that snake by the tail, it turned back into his shepherd's staff. And it was that staff that Moses would use to part the Red Sea, empowered by God. It was that staff that Moses would use as the shepherd of Israel across the Red Sea and through 40 years of wilderness wandering. Use what's in your hands. Take the next step. The other thing that Joshua does here in chapter 10, use uncommon sense. Use uncommon sense. Common sense is incredibly uncommon. How many of us know that? I mean, we live in one of the most educated cities in the world. I mean, you know, I don't care who you cheer for in football, but the University of Texas is a phenomenal institution of higher learning. It's unbelievable. We have, we have people that break the IQ scale living amongst us. And yet, a lot of times, some of us who are, who, you know, some of, being really smart doesn't mean that you have common sense. There are a lot of people that score a 33 squillion on the SAT and they can't tie their shoes and walk in a straight line. Uncommon sense means you take advantage of what you have in your hands. That uncommon sense is what Joshua did. God promised him the victory, and he still kept marching through the night. He still kept pushing through the night to take his enemy by surprise. He was using that common sense, that military strategy, because God had given Joshua a brain. A few years ago, Julie and I knew a couple that were really kind of at a, at a crossroads in their lives professionally, and they were really seeking God on, on what he wanted them to do and, and what the next step might be. And they discerned through prayer and talking to people that, that God wanted them to start a business. And, and so they decided, we're going to start this particular kind of business. And they shared with us kind of this, this journey that they were on. And it was a couple of months later that, that they hadn't really made any movement on this business. So I just asked him, I said, so what's going on? He goes, man, we're just praying and waiting on God. Now, that's awesome. So, so tell me, what are you doing as you're praying and waiting on God? He goes, that's it. We're just praying and waiting on God. And I said, that's awesome. What are you doing while you're praying and waiting on God? He goes, we're just praying and waiting on God. We believe he's going to just drop something on us. I was like, man, you better be careful. God will drop a piano on you. We're, we're just going to wait. That's, that's cool. That's biblical. Those who wait on the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles. But while you're waiting, Jack, Jackie, work. Do what God has put in front of you to do and do it to the best of your abilities. We tell our kids this. Say, look, I understand. Listen, you're never going to use geometry. You're not. I'm not going to lie and tell you that you will. You won't. Hire somebody. If you need geometry done for you, hire somebody. 
Now, if you're an engineer or an architect, man, we love y'all. That's great. But that's like one out of a squillion. But when you're in geometry class, do your best. Do what your hand has to do. It's common sense, but it's so uncommon. Joshua pressed the battle that night there at the intersection of super and natural. Faith meets hard work. Faith is supernatural. Hard work is natural. You just do what's in front of you to do. Use what's in your hands. Now, we haven't even gotten to the freaky part yet. We, we haven't even, we're just kind of getting warmed up. Because over in verse number 12, <clears throat> Joshua does something really, really remarkable. Look at verse 12 and 13. On the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. Now, this is no longer just the warriors. This is no longer just those who had attacked the Amorites. This was all of Israel. And as a leader, if you're in front of a big group of people, the temptation is to pray a safe prayer, isn't it? The temptation is to say, Father, thank you for this victory so far. We pray for another one soon. In Jesus' name, amen. But that's not what Joshua does. I mean, Joshua puts the hammer down and goes for it. Look at what he said in verse 12. He said, let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ajalon. Joshua is saying, Lord, we have the advantage in this battle and in this war, but nighttime is coming. We need more light. We, we need more daylight to take this victory and claim it for you and your purposes. So I'm praying right now in front of all of Israel, let the sun stand still. Now, just for a second, let's cut Joshua a little bit of scientific slack you and I both know that the earth rotates around the sun, not the other way around. But Joshua was dealing with a mindset and a perspective 1,400 years before Jesus walked on the earth. So for him to say, let the sun stand still, his prayer is not just about the sun and its relationship to earth, but the prayer is that the day will remain longer than it normally does. And I know right now some of you are going, yeah, I can't get there. I'm sorry, if, if the earth stops rotating and daylight lasts longer, then the oceans slosh over and Asia's gone and we're not real sure about Los Angeles. I just don't know that that could really happen. And I believe me when I tell you, I feel you. But I believe with everything that I have, that actually happened. I believe that that day actually lasted longer than it normally does. And the reason that I believe that is because I believe God created everything. I believe God created the natural laws and orders that our world exists by. Gravity, biology, all of those things. I was thinking this week about the human body. Just, just think about it, mostly because mine's breaking down. But I was thinking about <laughs> the fact that it's this incredible engineering marvel the, the, the engineering, just the angles of how the body works together, the plumbing that goes on in men, 
is unbelievable. Women, ugh. But I'm just saying, the stuff that God strung together to make the human body is remarkable. And so, because I believe God did that, if he created those natural laws, it follows that he could suspend those natural laws if he so chose. Check this out, verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel had defeated its enemies. Now, I freely acknowledge it takes a step of faith to buy that. And that's okay. I think every relationship in the world takes a step of faith. That, that's, you know, Julie and I have been married almost 24 years. She takes a step of faith every morning. Every relationship requires faith. Don't think that just because we can't explain something doesn't mean it's impossible or it couldn't have happened. Nobody, I don't think anybody really is that arrogant to suggest if I can't explain it or science can't explain it, then it must not be real. I mean, that, that's, that's nobody really, I don't think. But here's what's going on in this place. Here at the intersection of super and natural, faith asks for the ridiculous. Faith asks for the ridiculous. Now, I didn't make that up because I needed a neat little bow to put on this message. That's a promise from God. God is the one in Ephesians chapter 3, the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, God can do more than all we could ask or imagine. It's the verse that's inscribed in our cornerstone in the lobby out here. God can do all that we can ask, can do more than we ask or imagine. Think about that for a second. You know, we, we love, we're drawn to dreamers, aren't we? Steve Jobs. Henry Ford. We, we were drawn to those kind of personalities that see things that don't exist yet and then make them a reality. But the Bible says because God is who he is, he can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And so at the intersection of super and natural, faith asks for the ridiculous. The thing that's so out there, the thing that seems so unattainable, unachievable, real faith says, God, if I believe you can do this. That's what Joshua did. Let the sun stand still. God, I believe you can do that. But only at the intersection of super and natural. You see, to ask for the ridiculous means that we have to acknowledge there are some things in our lives that could be better. And so I just want to mention to you a couple of questions to ask as you do this in your own life. What's impossible in your life right now? What's impossible in your life right now? What is it that you think is beyond all hope, help, and repair. Like, well, I mean, you know, 
just kind of is what it is. Like the Jack Nicholson movie, it's as good as it gets. God says, no. Ask for the ridiculous. Ask for the impossible. Believe that he can do that which we cannot even imagine. What's impossible in your life right now? That your marriage would thrive? I I don't mean just survive. I I don't mean just to stay together for the kids' sake. But I mean to thrive, to flourish, to be a source of joy and life and hope and fun. What? Yeah. What is it that you think might be impossible that, that, that you could really and truly connect personally with God to, to know him to be known by him to engage with him on a regular basis what is it that's impossible in your life and now take that thing and let me just give you some, some parameters maybe Is that thing in your life bigger than the Red Sea or the resurrection? I mean, God parted the Red Sea. Millions of Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry land, escaping the approaching hoofbeats of Pharaoh's army. And then he brought the Red Sea back together again. Is that thing that's impossible in your life bigger than that? Or maybe... In the final analysis, remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And is that thing that's impossible in your life bigger than Jesus coming back from death? Because the same God who parted the Red Seas and raised Jesus from the dead invites you into a relationship with himself at the intersection of super and natural. And I want to just share with you today the best way to make that happen. That's it. I hope you you ought to be taking notes right now. This is it. This is my prayer journal. I'm really spiritual, so I have a moleskin. But that's it. I'm going to do this real fast so you can't read. It's private. But this is my prayer journal. This is what I, I pray in. And on those days when, when I make that happen, when I choose to make that a priority, I sit down, pop the cap, pop a cap on this uh, little pen right here. I think it was all of about maybe $1.29. Very nice. And I enter the date. And I just start writing my prayer out. I just start talking to God in my journal. If you're a girl, it can be a diary. But for, you know, for a man, it's a journal. Now, I have to tell you something. Of all of the things that I get to do, of all the things that I have to do as a husband, 
as a dad, as pastor of Lake Hills Church, of all of the things that I get to do, all of the things that I have to do, this is the most difficult. This is the biggest challenge in my life. is to shut up and sit down and connect with God. Turn off the cell phone. <gasps> yes, turn off the cell phone. Turn off the music. Even step away from the tweeter for a little while. Instagram. I don't Instagram my quiet time. And just connect with God. Write out my thoughts, my prayers to him, what I perceive he is saying to me. I've never heard the audible voice of God. If you have, that's awesome. I've never heard the audible voice of God. I imagine it's somewhere between Morgan Freeman and Johnny Cash, but that's just me. <laughs> with a little wailing thrown in. But that's when God sings. But... This is the intersection of super and natural. This is where you connect. This is where the chaos at the feet of big techs disappears. This is where super and natural intersect. This is where faith meets hard work. And it has nothing to do with what I get to do for a living has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a pastor. It has something to do with the fact that I'm a follower of Christ. And Jesus Christ went to the cross so that I could connect with him, not just on Sundays with you, but every day. I don't do this every day. I hope that doesn't, you know, really disappoint you or I need to go find another church. If you find another church where the pastor says he does this every day, he's lying. I'm just going to tell you. But this is where it happens. And it's out of that that God makes sense of the noise. It's out of that that God reminds me of true north. It's out of that that God reminds me what really matters. It's out of that that God reminds me that he loves me. He doesn't just like me. He loves me. And he invites me to love him back with everything that I've got and everything that I do. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for this church. That's what I pray for. And that out of that, we get to see a move of God. A move of God that transcends seasons, vacation, travel schedules, financial fluctuations. But we live at the intersection of super and natural. If you're here today 
and you've never stepped into that relationship, then our church would love to invite you into that. But rather, let me put it this way. We would love to deliver the invitation that God has made to you. It's not ours. You see, when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, it was an open invitation to follow him in life. Not just eternal life so that we go to heaven and we have a ticket to ride, but in life, day in and day out, in everything that we do, the life that is truly life. And it's available. It's available to anyone who would receive the free gift of salvation in Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. Because this is a holy moment. And I want to ask you to not be stirring around or moving for any reason. To not distract anybody from what God is up to. But if you're here today and you have never stepped into that relationship personally and definitively, then we want to invite you to do it. Just to pray right where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of surrender, where you commit your life to follow Jesus wherever he leads. I know that I, you know, kind of naturally, I think most people naturally shy away from surrender. But in the case of Jesus Christ, we are surrendering to the only one who will never take advantage of our surrender. To the only one who promises to fulfill every part of our lives in that surrender. It doesn't take an elaborate ceremony. You don't have to pass a test. You just have to surrender every part of your life. If you're there today and God's brought you there, then I want to invite you to pray right now, just silently where you're sitting. Just talk to God and say, God, Jesus, I need you, and I give you my life. Every part of who I am. Jesus, I confess my sin. Everything that I'm ashamed of, everything that I feel guilty about, I confess to you and I claim your forgiveness. Complete. I choose to believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again for me and I give you my life from this moment forward I pray this prayer in your name Jesus every head bowed and every eye closed for just a moment.
If that was your prayer and you meant it, I want to ask you during this sacred moment, if you would just raise your hand and raise it up high, unmistakably. Because this is the most important moment in your life. And by your raised hand, I want to make sure that you know this is real. This happened. And so as you raise your hand, you mark this moment in your life to know that on June the 1st, 2014, that relationship with Jesus, Jesus himself became real to you personally, never to be taken away forever. For us as a church family, we have no greater privilege or priority than to be a part or just to be in the room and pray with you as God moved in your life and you responded to his grace initiative. And so as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together to tell you welcome home.